just a 10-minute light rail ride from the heart of Denver, on the fifth floor of the Lamont School of Music, there is a rose. It is 10 feet tall and wide and hewn from stone. The panes of glass set into the petals bring the glorious Rocky Mountains into view. On the other side of the glass, six Lamont musicians sit down to discuss the world of music behind and beyond that window. This is the Rose Room. Thank you for joining us for part two of our Meet the Hosts episode of The Rose Room. In this episode, you will be meeting Macy Andrus, Angela Mitchell, and Lily Bailey Duran. Today I'll be talking to Macy Andrus, one of our hosts and our outreach coordinator and finance manager. Macy is an undergraduate at Lamont pursuing vocal performance and theater. Thanks for being here today, Macy. Thanks for having me. So I want to learn a little bit more about your background. You mentioned that you grew up as an Air Force brat and you lived all over the world. How does this background affect your approach to the music profession? Oh, that's a really good question. I think one of the big things is it gave me a really broad perspective in a lot of ways. I lived all over the country. I've lived East Coast, Midwest, South West Coast. Um, I've lived in Germany. And I think it just gave me a really broad perspective and makes me willing to and comfortable with trying new things, Uh, which I think as musicians, it's really easy. We like routine and it's easy to get stuck in our routine and it's sometimes hard for us to change. And I'm just really blessed that I was raised to have to change all the time. So I think it taught me to just be willing to change and to grow. And I think it also, you know, has given me just a really big respect for like the history behind music and just kind of understanding where it all comes from. I think it's really hard for a lot of people to kind of put some of the music in context and it put stuff in historical context, whether that's in music or just in general. Um, and I think, you know, because I was so privileged and able to see so many different things all over Europe and all over America, I think it's, I don't know, just made it a lot easier, I think, to recognize and appreciate where the music is coming from and I don't know it's kind of fun singing different composers and being like hey I've been to their house or I've been you know things like that it's just I think it's just made me more appreciative of the whole art form in itself that's awesome can you tell me about is there one specific moment that you can think of where this came into play Mm. honestly not really I, I honestly feel like the moving around has had more effect for me like socially and how I approach like I don't know like politics and (laughs) approach like life itself in terms of music I think it hasn't had a huge role but it certainly has like I don't know I mean it's shaped who I am and it's you know made me willing to want to experience classical music you know seeing so much of the classical world I have well I guess recently I've been really interested in reading reading a lot of like World War II novels and um, different things like that and have also started exploring repertoire that was written inspired by the effects of the Holocaust and of World War II and even World War One. and having had seen concentration camps firsthand and seen a lot of just different like I don't know the city I lived in in Germany um, was called Stuttgart and that was the city that was just flattened by the war completely flattened and has been rebuilt and it's incredible to see the way that it's affected it. And I think it's just made me really interested in like 
I don't know, just repertoire that's based off of that. I've been singing a Debussy piece. It was the last, the last one he wrote. And I'm not going to try and pronounce it because it's awful. But he, it's about World War II and it just, it makes it easier to connect for sure. Obviously, I didn't experience World War II, but I saw, I've seen a lot of, a lot of what it did and it's, it's scary stuff. And it um, makes it cool to just, I don't know, just appreciate it more. As a historian, I've studied World War II a lot, but I haven't physically been to any of the, the places it affected. So... Mm-hmm. It's, it's pretty sombering. That. It's very life-changing, for I, sure. <laughs> I can imagine. So moving on to your musical journey, can you tell me about your biggest struggle and your biggest victory in music? Mm, that's a hard question. I think my biggest struggle has probably been just feeling, uh, I think just like feeling legit, <laughs> like feeling like I am a singer in high school. I, my best friend, she's a wonderful person, wonderful performer, we're super close, but we did competitions together all the time, and I was always, like, two steps behind, and she was, you know, had been at that school for a long time, I was just there for my last two years of high school, so she was established, the theater department knew her, anyway, so it was just hard constantly being, I don't know, kind of, like, behind, I've always, and I, I think that also goes back to moving a lot. I never got to establish myself anywhere. And so I just have always felt behind other people in terms of like success. And, you know, I was only ever in one musical in high school. Most people did them all four years, like, you know, stuff like that. Um, I didn't start choir till my junior year of high school or sophomore year. And then coming to college, I felt very intimidated by my classmates and, you know, being roommates with somebody who is also in the music program is wonderful, but also has been really difficult sometimes having to just feel a constant like competition and just constantly feeling like behind and so I think that's been like just my biggest struggle is trying to feel like I am a singer (laughs) and like making my name as a singer because then I you know came to Lamont and started doing stage management which was awesome and I absolutely have loved that and I'm pursuing it but I've felt very appreciated for my stage management but I've never felt super needed for my voice (laughs) so it's been hard and um, I think this last quarter I really have started to improve on that and feel a little bit more like okay I'm a singer and that's who I am and that's what I'm going to (laughs) be and in terms of my biggest victory I did have one experience my uh, it was actually when I decided that I wanted to do music and wanted to pursue it I was a junior in high school and I uh, was doing Nats competition for musical theater, and I sang this piece called Maybe I Like It This Way from The Wild Party, which is a very intense piece. Feel free to listen to it, but it's very heavy. It's a, just a very intense topic, um, and it was something that I personally like had a very direct relation to, and when I was singing, I was in the semifinals, I think, and I was singing it, and as I was singing, like, tears just started streaming down my face, <laughs> and I, like, wasn't audibly crying, like, I was still singing, but there's going down my face. As soon as I stopped, the room was just, like, dead cold, and the judges just looked at me and were like, thanks. <laughs> the energy was just so strange, and I walked out of that room feeling like I had just processed years of emotions, and it was really intense, but at the same time, I walked out of there, and I was like, this is what I want to do, because this is why music matters, you know, as it helps people process, it helps people move forward, it helps people to feel things that sometimes words can't do, and I think that has been one of my biggest, I don't know if it's a victory, but certainly like one of the most important moments for me, um, where I just realized this is important, and if I can stir these emotions in myself, I hope I can do it for other people. Thank you for sharing. I hear a lot of parallels to my own story. I also... I didn't join choirs until my sophomore year of high school. Mm -hmm. And I've also struggled with feeling legitimate as a singer. 
I think it's, it's so important to share those things. Yeah. So thank you. You're welcome. Yeah, it's, it's tough. <laughs> it's really hard. It's a yeah. competitive world. And especially when we're all friends with each other, it's really easy to compare yourself to each other, which is obviously not healthy. <laughs> <laughs> Comparison is the thief of joy. Truly. Like, we all know that, but <laughs> we still we still do it. Oh, yeah. So moving on to something completely different from music, I have had the pleasure of meeting your dog, Coda. He's the best. And he's such a cutie. Thanks. Uh, I, I've learned from my own experience adopting a dog that adopting and training a young dog can be a significant lifestyle adjustment. What was the decision mm-hmm. process that led to you taking him on at this stage in your life? Yeah, you know, people thought I was crazy. <laughs> um, I'm sure people thought you were crazy too. Like, and you know, you mentioned this to me before. Like, people, there's just a stigma that college students can't do it because you can. That being said, you do need to be responsible and aware. But the reason I got him is actually, you know, it's funny you say it's completely unrelated because it is a little related. I got him because I, as I mentioned, of just like all those like processing feelings and stuff, like have had a lot of different experiences in life, some of which have not been so positive. And that being said, I do have PTSD and that is not fun. But so I got him and I'm training him to be a service dog for my PTSD. So he'll be able to detect and stop panic attacks, um, be able to stop destructive behavior, things like that. And in addition to that, I think as somebody who's anxious and it's easy to spiral into thoughts of like loneliness and despair, just to have a constant companion and partner, like, even though he's not fully trained in his tasks yet, has just completely changed my life in the last six months and has made it so much easier to be independent and to feel okay, like, <laughs> on my own. That being said, I think it's something you definitely shouldn't do if you don't have people that are willing to help you because it's really hard to do on your own. I'm really fortunate and I have really awesome friends that are, when I go to work, willing to um, feed him and walk him for me, which is super sweet. And, you know, I do what I can to not be gone too long and that being said eventually he will be going everywhere with me and he does go most places with me now but yeah that was kind of the main decision factor back in October I had a little mental spiral and realized that I did need more support than I thought and somebody brought up the idea of well what if what if you had a dog what if you had a service dog that could help you to one not spiral so quickly and to two, just like be a companion and give you a sense of responsibility so that I'm not being so, I don't know, reckless, I guess. <laughs> and I think that that has really been super positive. But it is it is fun. You make a lot of friends with <laughs> people just wanting to pet your dog. Last night I was walking back to my car and there's some new girls that moved across the street from us. And they're like, oh, my God, can we pet your dog? He's so cute. And they're like, let's hang out sometime. And <laughs> just so easy to make friends when you have a dog. But, yeah, that was just kind of the, the thought process that went into that. And I'm very grateful. He's the best. My, my dog, it was also a process. He is not a trained service dog, but he's an ESA. Mm-hmm. I got him for much the same reason. I think mental health is just it's so important. It is, yeah. That'll be an episode in like a month. (laughs) (laughs) Stay tuned. Yeah, no, they they really do. I think something I didn't really expect to be as useful as it has been is just the sense of responsibility he gives me because I was honestly just being stupid and like being out way too late and I'm just like being dumb and having that sense of responsibility just makes it 
so much easier to like make the right choice and to be more responsible and I also think it's just like helped me grow as a person a lot and become more selfless and it's just fun I don't know I just love it (laughs) my friends will text me be like how's your son I miss him (laughs) like he's got a lot of a lot of aunts and uncles and my parents love him they're not dog people so that was a big deal and I know I know you spend a lot of time in the mountains with Coda as well Mm -hmm. you have such a great love of the outdoors where did this particular passion come from? Well, I grew up with a dad who is an Eagle Scout and a Scout Master. <laughs> so, <laughs> kind of started there. I also have four brothers. I have one sister as well. Big Mormon family. But I have four brothers and they would spend all the time outside. I like to say I grew up in Washington State. Lived there for five years when I was in elementary school. So, that's kind of where a lot of my like childhood memories are. And when we lived there, we would go camping all the time. We would go kayaking all the time. I was always playing outside behind our house. We had this big green belt and I would just run around barefoot, like in the forest and just do my thing. And um, I just always, I don't know, just ever since I was young, just always wanted to be outside. And I think it was just encouraged mostly by my, my dad. And in addition to that, my mom is a, a CrossFit trainer and yoga instructor. So she is very active. Um, and my dad's a doctor. So I was raised in a very healthy, active home that also encouraged like being outside. And I just fell in love with it. And I used to get, <laughs> I used to get pretty upset though when I was young because my dad and my brothers would go on these big backpacking trips. They'd do 50 milers. So they'd go out for five days, do 10 miles a day and do their 50 miles. And I was always so jealous that I couldn't go because I was so little. And eventually when I was old enough, um, I told my dad, I was like, hey, I want to go backpacking. I want to start doing this. And he was like, let's do it. So three years ago when we were living in Colorado Springs, we went backpacking and I just fell in love and had to keep doing it. And I I lived in Colorado Springs my last, last two years of high school and Colorado, I think, is the only place I've lived that, like, feels like home, and I feel like my personality and my energy and my interests just, like, fit here. It's just been so nice, (laughs) and I don't know, for somebody who's been, I've always kind of felt a little displaced my whole life, being somewhere that feels like I belong has been really lovely, and I think a big part of that is because of the culture of being outdoors. Ever since I was young, I've always wanted to be outside and independent, actually, (laughs) This is a funny story. When I was like, probably like six, I think I was like six or seven, my family was, we were camping and we were camping right next to a lake and we brought our kayak and I woke up before everyone else and everyone else was still sleeping. I wanted to kayak and I was like, well, I want a kayak, so I'm going to go kayak. So my little six-year-old self, I pull the kayak out, untie it, pull it out into the water, get the paddle and kayak out into the middle of the lake. And then I was just laying there, like laying back, just like enjoying the sun and then out of nowhere, I start hearing all this yelling. And my dad, I have never seen him do anything that quickly in his life, was swimming at like lightning speed towards me <laughs> and got out there. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, I, y'all were sleeping. I just wanted to kayak. <laughs> so I think that's like, that's the beginning of it all where I just, you know, I was like, I want to be outside. And I'm a very independent person. I always have been. And I think that's just the perfect way to showcase. I think that told my parents what they were in for for the rest of the rest of their life with me. <laughs> yeah, my parents actually still have that, that same kayak, and I was just visiting them last month, and we took it out to a lake, and I brought Coda in it, so that was cute. And Coda and I got to kayak oh. together. It was fun. I just think the outdoors are the best. I also think, kind of going back to the mental health conversation as well, I think the outdoors is just such a good place to take care of your mental health because it's a place where it's quiet, it's calm, things 
I don't know. I think it's just really beautiful to see how nature takes care of itself and see just the untouched lands. And I just think there's something really special about that. And it kind of makes you believe that you can take care of yourself if a whole ecosystem can do it. That's so beautiful. I've never thought about it that way. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you so much for being here. It's been great talking to you. You too. Thank you, Alice. Next, we will be hearing from Angela Mitchell, our Lamont staff liaison. I was born and raised in rural Wisconsin, about 30 miles or so outside of Milwaukee, and I always loved singing in choirs. And when I was in high school, I started taking voice lessons and I participated in um, solo and ensemble, which is where you get a chance to like sing little solos and sometimes duets and trios. And I loved getting up and performing in front of people. And when it came time to look for college, I knew I wanted to go to college and I knew that I loved music, but I also knew that I wanted to be able to support myself if push come to shove. And I was always pretty pragmatic about that, like about can a music degree guarantee an income? And as you and I know, the answer is, well, not necessarily. (laughs) And my parents were always, you know, very encouraging of whatever I wanted to do. So and when I was in high school, I was always, I was always a really good student. I got great grades. I was the salutatorian of my high school class. When I went to college, I decided I wanted to do music and I wanted to do uh, something in like the math area. So I started out as a major in actuarial science, which was basically it requires a lot of math. And that was something I don't, I had also been really strong in. So, but it was after about four semesters, four more semesters of calculus in college where I said, wow, this is kind of a lot because I was also pursuing a music degree. So I switched to uh, risk management and insurance and I got a bachelor of science in business in risk management and insurance. And I also got a bachelor of music in voice performance. That kind of started me on this sort of a dual track where I've always been pursuing music, but I've also been doing another thing. And what that other thing has been has sort of varied over the years. Mm -hmm. So after I got my degree, um, my two degrees in 2008, um, I actually got a job offer to work for Deloitte Consulting. And I did that for two years. So it was it was really amazing. I mean, it was also right at the beginning of the recession starting, the Great Recession of 2008 to like 2010-ish. And um, it was a wonderful experience. But at the end of the day, I was like working behind computers all day. And I was also traveling four days out of a week. I was like not sleeping in my own bed. I did it for two years. And then that whole time, I continued to sing. And um, I decided to pursue uh, graduate school. So I got my master's of music. I quit my job um, at Deloitte. I moved to Houston, Texas, and I went to the University of Houston and got my master's of music. I went across the street to Houston Public Media, kind of basically just knocked on the door and introduced myself to the director of classical programming and uh, walked out of there with an internship. So um, I worked throughout my master's across the street at Houston Public Media for the classical radio station there, um, which uh, unfortunately is no longer around, but I was part of the launch of that station and it was an awesome experience. I, um, when I got 
finished when I finished with my master's, I started working full time for the classical radio station as a, a producer and a host. And about four weeks after that started, so four weeks after I got my degree and started my full time job, I had a, a major vocal injury. It was not due to anything I had done or related to my technique. It was bad luck. It came on very quickly. What happened was um, I wasn't feeling ill or anything. I just stopped being able to sing or speak one day. Couldn't phonate. And a virus had attacked and damaged my left recurrent laryngeal nerve, which is the nerve that controls the fo- the left vocal fold. And so mm-hmm. the, the left fold was really weak. And so you couldn't they weren't closing, they weren't meeting. And so air was just coming out. I couldn't even, you know, I was like speaking at a whisper, I couldn't sing. <clears throat> I went to, you know, I went to the doctors and uh, for about nine months, I couldn't sing. For about six of those months, I didn't know if I would sing again. And this was all like, kind of a fateful sort of convening of circumstances. Just got my master's, I had just met who would eventually become my husband. I wasn't able to do any auditions. But I was able to do a lot more in radio because my voice, my speaking voice came back a lot quicker. So I, in between the wringing of my hands about whether my voice would come back, I I really uh, started doing a lot of work in radio. And, you know, the voice did come back and um, I kept working for uh, Houston Public Media. And then uh, my husband Brett's uh, job, his job took us to Cleveland, Ohio. Um, he was the he got the job as the assistant conductor of the Cleveland Orchestra, and we were engaged by then. So I moved with him to Cleveland. I started working for WCLV in Cleveland. The big flagship classical radio station in Cleveland uh, has been broadcasting the Cleveland Orchestra for 55, maybe 60 years now. And it was just so great to uh, to work there and continue getting my feet wet in radio for another four years and singing along the way. And then uh, Brett's job took us to uh, Colorado finally, and that's where we are now. Um, He's the music director of the Colorado Symphony. I uh, work for University of Denver, continue singing, and this year I've been taking advantage of my tuition waiver at University of Denver, um, where I work as the enrollment specialist for Lamont Admission. And I've been uh, taking lessons with Sarah Bardell, and that is finally where you and I met Macy at the Lamont (laughs) School of Music. How did you end up switching then from working in radio to then working at a university? Oh, wow. So it wasn't so much that I wanted to get out of radio because what was more important was that I wanted to live in the same city as my husband. So he moved out, out here and started his job and I was trying to find employment in that field out here. And... Classical radio, I'll tell you this, there are not that many jobs. It's a very niche market. After, I think it was like eight months or so of like me looking for jobs and living in separate cities, it was just like, that's enough of that. (laughs) Paying for rent on an apartment in Denver and a mortgage in in Cleveland. So so I moved out here. I got the job at DU um, because I want to be working in or around music in some way and make a positive contribution to that field, whether it's performing on stage in opera or musical theater, or in the realm of classical radio, sharing, you know, knowledge about pieces of music, or working now to help young musicians find their way and find their path 
in classical music through higher education. So I saw this job come up at Lamont and it was like, I knew that the school had a great reputation and I was like, well, you know what? I would love to just to like try this out. And there's so many benefits to working in higher education. Like the tuition waiver for one is a big one. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, working in radio, to be honest, it's like, it's a real intense pace because radio is 24 seven. And it was, you know, it was kind of a way to have a different sort of pace, um, which I really enjoy. And I've been able to continue on in this media realm. I've been doing like freelance video um, work. So I've, I got into video kind of production work in my last year in radio back in Cleveland. I just kind of taught myself how to do it. Um, And now I've been, you know, doing this on a freelance basis. And I produced the promotional video for the Lamont School of Music and um, have done a little bit of work for like the Boulder Philharmonic and well, have a few other places, but you know, I'm kind of building up that sort of portfolio right now. So mm-hmm. stay tuned. Wow. Well, it sounds like you just have so many skills. Well, one thing that definitely stood out to me that you talked about was doing some musical theater and some opera, mm-hmm. which in your experience, what do you find are like the biggest similarities and difference that you've noticed between musical theater, classical, and maybe any other kind of singing you've done? It's a really interesting topic because um, my experience with it has been, and I don't want to say that my experience is reflective of everybody's. I came up through a classical voice program at a university, a bunch of opera kids, and there was some delving into musical theater repertoire, but not much. And I also got a little bit of a sense among my classical voice colleagues that musical theater was sometimes less than and pop music was sometimes less than other genres were less than. And I don't, I don't want to say I ever bought into that, but it did, it did make me shy away from the genre for a long time because I didn't think that I could really do it. I didn't think that that was like what I was good at. And as it turns out, it wasn't until after I got my master's and frankly that I met my husband who said to me, you know, you'd be really good at this kind of music. And I said, well, but I'm scared. (laughs) I can't (laughs) dance. (laughs) I can't belt. And he's like, whatever, you know, excuses, excuses. So when I got to Cleveland, I actually started taking a, a few lessons with these teachers who focused on musical theater at, um, there's a school uh, outside of Cleveland called Baldwin Wallace University. And they have like, it's a really renowned like musical theater program. And the, one of the voice faculty there happened to be the wife of my boss at WCLB. So Cynthia O'Connell, she's wonderful. So I um, started taking a few lessons with her. I took some lessons with Joan Ellison at the Cleveland Institute of Music, who is a specialist in like pop singing. And she's actually like a, she's a Judy Garland specialist. So she, she's amazing. Oh, cool. um, but I slowly, slowly but surely learned how to access that part of my voice, the belt. I always, I don't know, in classical voice, I kind of got the sense like that could hurt you and, and that mm-hmm. there was sort of that attitude, but I, but I learned how to do it in a healthy way, slowly. And having this, and I want to also emphasize that having the security of a classical technique before I delved into that sort of singing made me very aware and plus like the voice stuff I had gone through of what healthy singing was. I did it very, very carefully and 
it turned out to just be like the greatest thing. I loved it. My first musical theater role was in Cleveland. It was Cinderella and Into the Woods. And it was with oh. a, yeah, a community theater um, outside of, of Cleveland. And it was just the best experience ever. Like what a dream of a show to be like my first musical theater show in a yeah, role of Cinderella. But I'll be honest with you, like I remember learning the role and saying to, to Brett, this is the hardest thing I have ever done. It was the hardest role I had ever learned. It was such a important lesson for me to understand that musical theater can be just as hard and wonderful as opera. And also there are really fantastic musicals. There are really fantastic operas. There are really crappy operas and really crappy musicals. It's just like, what a great experience it was to do Cinderella in Into the Woods. And I had to become like such a better actor for it. And that's another topic in itself is like acting and musical theater. Whole episode on that. (laughs) Oh, we can and we should. But yeah, I, I, I just love musical theater. And I think it's just like, so important to as American singers that mm-hmm. we are well versed in it because gosh I mean it takes just as much vocal technique to sing a role in carousel as it does to sing a role in a Mozart opera because it's vocally demanding and the acting demands frankly that you have to have for musical theater I mean opera singers get away with murder <laughs> in acting it's sad <laughs> I think it had made, it's actually made me a better opera singer in that genre, doing work in mm-hmm. musical theater. It's made me a better actor, the way that I approach scores. And I see that in the way you may see approach scores too, because you started mm-hmm. in musical theater and then got into more opera. A little, yeah, basically. You can tell when you are watching somebody if they've done any like straight acting or musical theater. It's just like, yeah, yeah. you can tell. Well, out of everything you've done, like radio, being in musicals, being in operas, you know, doing your admissions... Like, if you could pick one to do for the rest of your life. I can answer that pretty easily. It would be sing. I want to sing and 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 I say that with the awareness that I won't be able to sing for the actual rest of my life. And that at at a certain age, the technical ability just kind of starts to degrade. And that's okay. And... Um, but that's not for several decades, I hope. <laughs> and that's because, and I say that because that's what has always been the constant for me, even though I've done my other things, which, you know, I have always sang throughout that and I've always performed and I've always viewed that as like, I get to contribute to this human endeavor that has been going on for centuries, which is to create a thing of beauty, which is music, and which is only truly alive and present when it is being performed. It is not the score. And which really ultimately comes from one human mind, from, you know, Mozart's mind, Beethoven, Verdi, these wonderful geniuses throughout history, and whom we are discovering more now Importantly, in 2020, we are. it is important that we go back and find these ignored voices, these voices of color, these women. It is an honor to be, I'm not the person thinking of those, of those works of art. I'm not the, ones, the one writing the music. It is such an honorable pursuit to get to share the music of Beethoven with people. I always think of it as like I am the conduit. And it is my job and my duty to do the very best I can to honor that composer's intentions. And 
it's just kind of icing on the cake that I get to put my own sort of personality into it, which is like me as me as, you know, Angela as the as the singer, as the artist. Finally, we will be hearing from myself, Lily Bailey Duran, the executive producer. Lily, I have your bio in front of me and you have such an interesting path because you have all these other interests besides just music, including costuming. So what I would love is for you to maybe give me like the 60 second summary of of who you are and how you got to this point in your journey. And then we'll kind of dive into a few things along the way. Let's see. Growing up, I actually was a part of this program called Kinder Music. It's a program specifically for infants to, I think, about seven years old. And they teach children how to sing, how to do rhythms and all that stuff. And so before I was able to speak words, I was singing rhythms and I was singing, you know, things like that. So that was really my first introduction into music was before I could even speak English. I was speaking music. And even from a really young age, I knew that what I wanted to do was be a musician. So all throughout high school, I would be in choirs, I would be in theater, and I went to the University of Northern Colorado. And at that school, I learned how to sing classically. And I quickly fell in love with the art of opera. Yeah, I graduated with a bachelor's of music business, which I think really helped me along the way because we learned about entrepreneurship and things like that. And I feel as if music really requires an entrepreneurial sort of spirit. To be a successful musician, you have to understand what your product is, what you can bring to the world. So I learned a lot in those classes, I actually found my business side of the degree to be just as helpful as the music side. And I graduated after five years. Then I decided to stay an extra year so that I could continue working with my voice teacher at the time, uh, Diane Bolden Taylor. She's amazing. She was the head of the voice department during that time. And I found so much success singing with her. So I stayed one extra year to get my performance certificate. And I was literally the first person to hand in my application for this certificate. I hounded the admissions to take my application. I was very loud that I wanted to be a part of this. And yeah, I I basically forced them into gear to make this happen. And so... Yeah, I got my performance certificate. That was a really rewarding experience. I got to see what it was like to be a grad student, but without the pressure of having to get my master's, I got to choose what classes I wanted to do, and I was able to add more roles to my resume. After getting that certificate, I began to perform in a few opera houses around Colorado, I performed with Loveland Opera, I performed with Boulder Opera, and I really enjoyed it, but I decided to take a break from singing once I got um, married. (laughs) 
after a while of just working my desk job, I realized that I needed music in my life. And so I decided to take lessons with Kathy Cash at DU, and she encouraged me to get my master's. And with her help, I decided to finally pursue my master's degree. And that's where you are now. So uh, you are going to be going into your second year of your master's. I thought it was so interesting what you said about um, how you were the first person to do the the performance certificate at the University of Northern Colorado. You also mentioned that you got um, a Bachelor of Music with an emphasis in business, and you started that program as well. So Lily, what's it like to basically start a program at a school? So with the Bachelors of uh, Music Business, that degree was three years old when I decided to join it. I was one of, I think there was maybe three of us in that program. It was a very small program. It just works for me. I'm the type of person who, (laughs) it's, it's actually funny, in my current employment, the job that I'm doing right now with my company didn't exist until I started there. So being one of the first to do something, it gives me a sense of freedom. I can choose my own path and it helps me understand what the best course of action would be. It helps me shape my degree, my job, all of that to what best suits me. Such a big part of what you do as well is costuming, and um, that is such an important skill. We cannot put on operas or shows without costumes. I'd love to hear a little bit more about how you got into costuming and sewing and all that and what you're doing with it now. Growing up, my mom would always make my Halloween costumes, and I started to help her from a young age. She taught me how to read patterns. She taught me how to use a sewing machine. And continuing from there, I found a passion for costume making. One of my friends in high school, she was actually one of my high school friend's mom. But I was closer friends with her than her son. And I would go over to her house all the time and she would teach me how to sew. And she would teach me how to create my own patterns. And she really taught me how to look outside of the box and how to creatively make whatever was in my mind. With her help, I really did begin to master how to sew. Since that point, I would create my own Halloween costumes. I would create costumes for characters and wear them to conventions. All of that stuff led me into costuming for shows. The first show that I costumed was Deflator Mouse. And it was it was a wild experience. I was the assistant costume director, and our costume director at the time was so interesting. She taught me all of the ins and outs. She taught me all of the shortcuts that you need to know as a costumer. I have a great story. So opening night of the show, one of the leads comes up to me and she tells me that her dress is too long. At this point, the costume director decided she didn't need to be at the performances. So I had to just make sure that everything was working fine. So I tell her to go get the, go get the dress, put it on, show me. 
and this dress is four inches past her feet with heels on. Oh yeah, this is uh, one hour before curtain. <laughs> so I tell her, okay, we're gonna safety pin it. We'll see what happens. And this is a full length dress, full skirt, like a lot of fabric. Thank goodness it was only one layer because if it was two, this wouldn't have happened. I told her to stand there while I pinned her into this dress. And I went around with safety pins and I, I put it to the length that it needed to be. And I looked at it and it looked horrible. So I told her, okay, take off your dress. I'm gonna sew this. And I had no sewing machine on me because I wasn't expecting to need my sewing machine. So me and one of my amazing helpers, he would thread the needle for me and he would set down, like, I think I had three needles at a time that were pre-threaded uh, and I just went and I hemmed that dress by hand and I managed to finish hemming that dress, I think in 30 minutes while still, you know, dealing with all of the other things that customers need to deal with. And I was in the chorus of the show, so I had to get dressed myself. That hem turned out to be the best invisible hem I have ever done in my life. I have yet to do a better one, and she was. I managed to get that dress on her with 15 minutes till curtain. One thing about costuming is you just have to be able to improvise. You have to be able to look at a situation and find every solution. I, I have another story of fitting one of my friends into a jacket that did not fit him. I had to shove notebook paper into the shoulders so that he could, uh, so that it would pad his shoulders because I didn't have any shoulder pads. And it looked beautiful. Just I told him, you're not allowed to take this off ever because then they'll see how terrible it looks on the inside. <laughs> Oh, wow. Such an interesting behind the scenes role that most singers probably won't even ever really understand. They just know what it's like to put their costume on and they don't, you know, know about all the steps and, and all the um, all the times you save save people's necks. <laughs> Switching topics a little bit. I heard that you are a huge Dungeons and Dragons aficionado. So I want to hear a little bit more about that. Dungeons and Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game. This means that a group of friends gets together and sits around a table and tells a story together. There's a lot of math. There's a lot of nonsense that goes into playing Dungeons and Dragons. But the one thing that I really found to resonate with me was the role-playing and the acting that you have to do when you play Dungeons and Dragons. I have become a much better improviser because of situations that we get into. When the person who is running the story, our dungeon master, when she tells me that we walk into a room and there's a dragon, well, I need to react as if there was a dragon and I need to act in an according manner. I have actually found a lot of inspiration between opera and Dungeons and Dragons. In my campaign that I'm currently dungeon mastering or DMing, I have a few characters that I have unapologetically stolen from operas. One of my absolute favorites is Prince Orlovsky from Deflator Mouse. I fell in love with this character and took him to 
a totally different level. He is a prince in my campaign and he is flamboyant and ridiculous and all of my players love him (laughs) and none of them have even seen the opera. So it's just, it's a fun way to incorporate them into different sort of things. That's awesome. Yeah, I've never I've never done Dungeons and Dragons, but I have a feeling that I would get super into it because I'm very much into that like fantasy world. <laughs> oh my gosh. And one of the classes is being a bard, which means that you have to sing all of your spells. Let me tell you, <laughs> it gets really exciting when you're in the middle of a battle and you have to start singing some random song about how you're going to destroy this monster. <laughs> oh my gosh, that's amazing. All right, well, Lily, you are our fearless leader in the Rose Room. This was your your idea and you've gathered this wonderful team team around you. How did you get so interested in podcasting? Right before I got married, I fell in love with a, ironically, a Dungeons and Dragons podcast. (laughs) I found so much comfort in listening to these people play this game. And as someone who has visual processing problems, as someone who learns better from audio rather than visual... I found listening to podcasts to be calming and to be something that I could do when I was driving, that I could do when I was when I was working out, when I was just going along with my daily tasks. It gave me a sense of comfort. It made me feel less lonely in situations where I might feel lonely because I had someone who was talking to me. And listening to this podcast, slowly I began to listen to many podcasts and I discovered a passion for hearing people and hearing people talk about things that meant a lot to them. Starting a podcast has been something that I've been wanting to do for years. It started with the concept of performing an opera only on an audio medium to treat it as if it were a radio play. It slowly evolved into this idea of just forming a community. The idea of the Rose Room originally started with just having a bunch of opera people get together and either discuss opera or perform scenes. And it evolved into bringing together a community who is torn apart by the COVID-19 crisis to bring together a community that may not normally talk on a daily basis. And that's sort of where this inspiration came from, was just having that community, having that sense of someone, someone who could keep you company while you're walking in between classes, someone that could tell you something interesting that you've always wanted to hear about, and having it in a way that's accessible and easy to listen to. Awesome. All right, Lily. Well, um, let's let's kind of end on a, a lighter note. What's a new hobby <laughs> that you've taken up in quarantine that you want to share? Honestly, podcasting has become my weird new hobby of <laughs> of the COVID-19 crisis is, you know, finding passion in this and learning how to better edit audio, learning what the process is of creating a podcast. It's a pretty odd hobby to have and I (laughs) it's extremely worthwhile thank you so much for tuning in to our meet the hosts episode 
If you have any questions, suggestions, or would like to be featured on a future podcast, please contact us at lamontroseroom at gmail.com. Thank you.